Can I have your attention for a moment? What's good, Revolution? Welcome to the What's a Revolution show. Show for men and the people who love them. Where we discuss how men can find and embrace the healthiest versions of themselves. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corporate. What's good, revolutionaries? I hope all is well. What the hell is going on in this world, revolutionaries? So many things, Jacob Blake, you know, in the latest, you know, the latest police shoot a black man. And we're continuing to see uprisings in our country. But what I'm also seeing is even as we're mired in a dual pandemic, I'm still seeing love and joy and peace in our communities. I'm seeing people reach out and saying, brother or sister, I am here with you. I see you. So as we move forward, I want to say Salbona to you. Salbona, I see you. I see you. I'm here with you. And as you know, here on our podcast on the What's Your Revolution show, if you need help answering what we think is the most thought-provoking question of your life, I am here. My team is here. We can help you. We can point you to resources. We can give you the solace. We can give you the opportunity to just talk and say, Brother Charles, this is where I am. And I just need to drop my burdens on you for a moment. You can reach out on Twitter, Instagram, or email me at ccorporu at wirevolution.com. I look forward to hearing from you, even if just your stories of how you have been able to answer the question and you're moving on and you are a beacon of light for someone else. Welcome to the show, revolutionaries. And as always, it seems like I find myself talking to these JMU alumni. As you know, on the last show, I had the infamous, we'll call him the infamous because that's my boy, Cornell Belcher, right? Everybody knows Cornell Belcher, MSNBC, CNN, Fox News. He is everywhere. Obama's poster. And if you listen to that last show, he drops science, right? He drops knowledge. He provides a masterclass. And so shout out to my boy, Cornell Belcher, for providing like the fodder for what has been a many of conversations about the What's Your Revolution show and where we are in this political landscape. But today, today, you know, it's interesting today because I am an avid stock market watcher and I've been watching these splits with Tesla and Apple. And today I have president of Prosperity Wealth Group, my man, my main man from Martinsville, Virginia, <laughs> JMU alum, all-star running back from JMU back in the early 2000s, Delvin Joyce. What's up, brother? How you doing? What's going on, my brother, man? I mean, you, uh, for me to be on this show, I feel like I've arrived. Man, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, brother. Because, I mean, dude, you have some amazing people on the show. I listened to the last episode with Cornell. I listen to your show all the time. You have these deep, thought-provoking brothers on your show. So hopefully your, your, your audience has no expectations for, to, for, for this show. Come on. My audience always has big expectations because they know I bring, I, look, we bring it here. And the guests that I have on my show are super amazing. They've done amazing things and continue to do amazing things in the world. So you just like, you're, you're like, you're ordinary because every other, you're like every other person that's been on the show. Like we have great people. So you're just, you're just ordinary in line with all the greatness that's going to, all the greatness. 
I'll take ordinary any day. <laughs> you know, look, as my frat brother, as my frat brother Jarvis DeBerry says, we're just ordinary people. People try to make us extraordinary because of who we are. But if you look at black folks and you look at black men, we're just ordinary people who lead, like who have been leading as kings, you know, throughout history. We lead our families. We lead our communities. So stop trying to make us extraordinary when we just do everyday things. So shout out, shout out to my man Jarvis DeBerry. Look, I, I want to ask you this first question, but I'm going to hold off for a second because, look, you're the financial guy. Like, you, you, you're the prosperity. And I love that prosperity wealth, right? As you think about us as people, as we build wealth, right? Generational wealth. And I'm looking at the market today, right? You know, and, and I'm, I'm sure you've got this like three, four, five, six screens in your house, right? Where you're, where you're watching the market. And like we, what has been going on since like March the 13th? The stock market has just gone off its rails. Like yesterday, we were almost back to where we were. Like when, when I say within like a couple of digits, almost back to where we were pre-COVID going crazy. What's going on with the market? Yeah, it's crazy. And that's a great question. I get this question all the time from clients. And what I think you have to realize is that the stock market and investors are always forward looking, right? It's always a forward looking uh, proposition. So back in March, the, the market, the S&P 500 was down about 30% in three weeks, right? And that was essentially because the market was looking at coronavirus and saying, you know what, this is going to be really bad in June, July, and August. And so it, it was pricing in in March what it thought was going to happen in June, July, and August. And so wow. what you have seen now is that the market is saying, all right, you know, coronavirus is still pretty bad, but I think we can see to the other end of this thing. Mm, so, okay. now, so now what you're seeing is the market trying to price in what's going to happen in December, January, right? You with me? So yeah. you can't you can't look at the market as a static entity for what's happening right now. It's always forward looking. Wow. Wow. That in itself is probably one of the greatest tidbits that we can think because most people think about the market, you know, at least well, let me say most people. I have thought about the market like what's happening right now, right? What's happening right now? Why is this seller? Tesla, everybody's looking at Tesla. Tesla was at 3,500 the other day uh, and split. Was it 3,500 somewhere? It split five yeah. to one, right? 30, you know, people are like, oh my God, I can buy a Tesla stock right now. Um, Apple, all those Apple stock that I bought into, like, you know, uh, right after COVID hit, I was like, let me buy Apple for the first time you know, and made a ton of money. Like everybody's like, oh, I can get Apple for 125. Well, Apple took a dip today. And I did, you know, first thing I said to myself when it split, I'm not getting in right now. Right. I'm going to watch yeah. a little bit, you know. Well, it's hard, man. I mean, the, the best advice I can give and I'm not making any sort of recommendation for any of your listeners, but the best advice I can give is that you have to have a long term strategy. So yeah. don't look at any of this stuff as a short term. It's got to be long term. And part of the issue, I think, too, is that in a lot of cases, people conflate the market and the economy, and they're totally different, right? So the, the economy can be terrible like it is right now, and the market could be doing well. And conversely, um, the converse can be true. So I would just say be in it for the long term and don't look at the market or the economy per se, evaluate the market for the market. 
No, hey man, I appreciate that. I, I definitely appreciate that. And the reason why I started this conversation today, we're going to get into a number of topics, uh, but that's just been like you know the highlight of the day. I haven't really been able to you know talk to some talk to my people like that. And I was like, my man Delvin's coming on the show tonight, so it'll be interesting for him to drop a little bit. And like like he said, revolutionaries, like he's not giving you advice. He's not giving you financial advice. He's just saying think about this as a long term strategy if you're getting it. One of the things, Delvin, that, that came up as I was having a little conversation with my frat brothers today who are thinking about right the stock market is yeah. if you're a, if if you know if you're a first time investor, we've been trying. We got one of my boys is the first like he's been thinking. He's like I got six or seven hundred dollars, right? Which may not even be like enough to even really play. But you know we've got the Robin Hoods of the world these days. Where when I first started investing, Robin Hood wasn't there, right? It was like you need at least ten k to start investing. But he wanted me to ask you, like, as a as novice first time investor, what if you had two, three thousand dollars, you know, would you invest or would you save that money? I think because I don't want you to feel like you got to make a, a a strategy recommendation. Yeah. All right. So the first thing that I'm going to say, if you are a first time investor, I am not going to allow you to invest money unless you have your emergency fund established first. Yeah. Period. Right. Because your emergency fund should be six months of your household expenses in an account that's easily accessible that has no risk assigned to it at all, right? Now, once you have that six-month emergency fund, then we can talk about investing money. Um, the thing that I, I typically tell like a new investor is you want to make sure that your investments are tied to a long-term goal or any goal, right? So don't you know, it's hard to conceptualize how you should invest money if there's no goal attached to it. Yeah, there you go. Tell the story. So most people were investing money for retirement, right? That's what you have your 401k at work for. So we have a long-term goal attached to that. It's really hard when you don't have any goal attached. So um, the first thing I would say is try to figure out what the goal is for the money. And that will lend, lead you to your time horizon. And your time horizon will dictate how aggressive or conservative you need to be with those investments. Now, once you have determined that this is maybe just speculative money that you are just trying to put in the stock market, this is the money that if you could go to Vegas right now, nobody goes to Vegas. <laughs> I, Vegas is open, right? Yeah, so Vegas is open, brother. Vegas. All right. So I guess that if you have determined that, hey, you know what? I got my emergency fund. I got my long-term goals established, but this is Vegas money then I always in, in, in encourage people to buy what you use, right? Yes. So this, yes. this is what we talk about with our kids. So if you have an iPhone, you need you should probably buy Apple, right? If you if you were in Nikes, if you got the fresh Nikes, like my man Charles Corpru always does. Yeah, you know, yeah, me, exactly. <laughs> give me my J's, give me, give me my ones. Don't, don't step on my J's, right? <laughs> but if you, if you are that guy, then you need to buy Nike. All right. If you go to Starbucks every morning and you spend eight dollars on a latte, then you should own Starbucks. So buy what you use because you actually get to see it at work. And that makes right, you an owner right. of that company. Yeah, no doubt. Look, I appreciate that, brother. I definitely and for our novice, you know, our novice, our first time revolutionaries are thinking about, you know, how do we can continue to create wealth? There's a number of ways and, you know, real estate, the stock market, you know, and really diversifying your income. But that's not, look, just because this brother is the president of Prosperity Wealth Group, that, that this is not the only piece of this brother. And we're going we gonna to delve into who is Delvin Joyce. Now, dear brother, 
as we always ask our guests, what's your revolution? This is a, this is a, uh, this is a hard question. And, you know, as I was preparing for this, I thought about that. And I said, you know, if you had asked me that 15 years ago, you know, my answer might be totally different than it is now. Um, but as you know, as a financial planner, I, I feel like I'm in a, a mission-based business. And my mission, my revolution is to, to help to close this racial wealth gap that we have in this country. So doing my part to make sure that, that people are educated and understand ways that they can create wealth, not just for themselves, but generationally. Yeah, no doubt. And as my revolutionaries know, who listen to the show on a regular basis, we talk about this. We talk about the importance of gener generational wealth and the ability to tap into resources, you know, not as my children, unfortunately, my, it will be my godchildren. Um, but to be able to tap in resources that I have left behind for your children and your wife, right? What, what you're building now, you know, what your family may have built for you that is passed down. And what we've seen, you know, over the years, particularly with um, white Americans, is that the greatest transfer of wealth has happened, right? Because of redlining that happened in the 1940s, right? Post -war, post World War II, when all of these homes were being built for you know the what they call the greatest generations and redlining so if you were living in a black neighborhood your home as you all know homes were less and as homes have matriculated in price right and intensified in price this transfer of wealth that has happened we've missed out on that and so as i've learned more about real estate and investments i think about that those who actually were able to have land and property as as you talk about, Devin, have the ability to pass down wealth. Interesting. So my, I th as I think about this and having you here, knowing those things that historically have happened to particularly black and brown folks, creating wealth, what are some other mechanisms that you might think about that we could do to create and maintain generational wealth outside of the market? Well, I, I do love the question. You are absolutely right. Um, black Americans in this country have largely been precluded from participating in the prosperity of this country. So you are spot on that real estate was a great way for other communities to build wealth and pass it on to other generations. And we were precluded because of actual policy. Right? Exactly. Like, mm. like actual policy, which for me, it blows my mind that that's what happened, but that's what happened. Um, the, the one thing that I would say, though, I want to go back to something along those lines is, you know, when I'm working with a new financial planning client, one of the things that we talk about is something called locus of control. And, you know, you're a PhD, you know what locus of control <laughs> is. But, I do, I do. But we talk about behavioral finance when we go through our financial planning process. And the one thing that I always tell them is that I want you to be internally focused when it comes to your financial situation. So, you know, I don't want you to think about the economy as a, a hindrance to you creating wealth. I don't want you to think about, you know, past policy that maybe the United States of America had in place that precluded you from creating wealth. I want you to be internally focused to say, what can I do individually with my family collectively to build and create wealth? So first off, you got to you got to have the mindset that, you know what, redlining, that was terrible. 
they, you know, that happened, but I'm internally focused and I'm going to, you know, figure out what I can do for my family. To, to your question, you know, one of the things, and this is not a sexy answer. All right. I'm going to give you here. This is not a sexy answer, but one of the things that we can do is just simply buy life insurance, right? I mean, life insurance is a miracle, all right? Because you could take someone who could never in their lifetime save the amount of wealth that they could leave to their family and future generations on their own. But with the stroke of a pen and a premium payment, they could leave millions of dollars wow. to the next generation. Right. And unfortunately, in, in our community, we've created this concept of life insurance as a means for funeral expenses, because Dr. Corpru, nobody wants that that collection plate to go around on Sunday morning. Right. To, to try to put, you know, Brother Charles in the ground. I know. So, don't even, don't even put that in the ethos yet, man. I still got a long way to go. Okay, my bad. <laughs> Hopefully. I was talking about the other Charles, the other yeah. Charles. But I did hear you're going to be 50 soon. that's for another show that is for another show yeah so so we've thought about life insurance not as wealth creation the way other communities think about it but we think about it as final expenses i need a ten thousand dollar policy to make sure the pastor doesn't have to pass the collection plate around on sunday or my family doesn't have to start a gofundme page right and so we start thinking about it from a from a broader perspective in terms of what can it do to help me build a legacy and create generational wealth that I otherwise could not do on my own, then I think that is an incredible first step. Wow. Yes. Yes. And because I'm, I'm sitting here, sometimes, you know, you realize that when the, the Jordan-esque answer comes, you're like, you're sitting watching and listening, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's not a sexy answer, but you're right. The creation of wealth can happen, unfortunately, with, with a stroke of a pen or the loss of a loved one uh, and the loss of a loved one. And that happened. But thinking about that planning, I have that conversation with my family. My, you know, my revolutionaries know that my father's 91 with Alzheimer's. My mother is to be 80 in a couple of months. And my parents grew up in the greatest generation. And that wasn't a conversation that they had. And so interesting that the largest life insurance policy that we have, it's actually on me. You know, right. Yeah, wow. and they took that. They took that out in 1987. Yeah, they took that out in 1987 on me. And so, as my parents, as as they move on in life, many of the life insurance policies are for small amounts. And yeah, yeah and so the greatest asset for us as a family is this house. As I am recording, not from New Orleans. Uh, I'm recording from Virginia Beach for the first time ever, but I'm in my childhood bedroom and this is our greatest asset that was bought in 1971 when I was six months old that has appreciated in value. Our family bought it for $42,000. It's now almost $300,000, you know, wow. which in itself is still over 50 years. It's still a small incremental increase, 42 to 300,000 when you see exorbitant um, increments in housing prices. But that this is our greatest asset that will be, you know, hopefully passed down at some point. Not hopefully, but, you know, thinking, as you said, like life insurance is one of those things. And as my boy Eli talks about the ability, if you learn philosophy, 
velocity velocity banking that happens with this is that's a whole nother show you know <laughs> right <laughs> right but but using your life insurance you know as a means to um do different things is really interesting we also talk about entrepreneurship and i'm going to move from this as another means of creating wealth right oftentimes black and brown folks go into entrepreneurship not because they've said there's there's this great solution but pushed into entrepreneurship because this is the only mechanism that actually is going to work and many of us proliferate that right proliferate our entrepreneur our ideas and then they become robust businesses so entrepreneurship life insurance uh, the market really understanding that. So, as you said, and we'll get back to this conversation, Delvin, that your revolution is to create generational wealth for your clients, which is something that we need to have continuous conversation about. But let's pull back for a second, Delvin. Right? Let's let's ask this question: Like, who are you? Like, how did you get to this space? Right? Because it is an interesting trajectory that I want my revolutionaries to know. Like this dude, president of Prosperity Wealth, right? Tell us the story from Martinsville, Virginia, right? And and move us through, you know, a little bit because this story is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. So from, from Martinsville, Virginia, which if anybody knows where that is on a map, it's a nice rural town right on the North Carolina border. Um, and I grew up, I had an older sister. She's four years older than me. I had my dad, my mom, and my dad was my inspiration. So he, he was the person in my life who told me that I could be and do anything. My mom was my discipline because mm -hmm. my, my dad, while my dad told me I could be and do anything, my mom gave me the discipline to actually do it. And, and when I say she gave me the discipline, <laughs> you, ain't got to, you, you ain't got to tell me my mom is from my mom is from North Carolina. I know what the discipline look like. You know what the discipline is. Right. So and, and what you should know about my dad is my dad was four feet, 10 inches tall as an adult. And my dad taught me something very important at a young age. He taught me that, you know, don't ever let anyone tell you that you can't do or be anything, because he said that when he was my age, you know, when I was a kid. He let people talk him out of playing sports because he was so short. He was diminutive, right? And so he was determined not to let that happen to me. So my entire goal growing up, you know, was to, to play sports. And I, I played all sports. I played basketball, football, baseball. But I wanted to get a college scholarship to play football. And, you know, when, when time came to, to get recruited out of high school, I had a great high school football career and no colleges recruited me. Um, so I actually ended up walking on as an unrecruited, uninvited walk-on at James Madison University. Shut up, I didn't know that. That wasn't in the yeah. bio. <laughs> that wasn't in the bio. So I didn't, you know, they didn't even know who I was. Not a single college in, in America recruited me out of high school. So I, I got into JMU academically and I went there and they didn't know who I was. So I showed up and said, I wanna play football. So I endured all the short jokes and blah, blah, blah. And by the time I left JMU, I was a two-time All-American. I broke, you know, eight school records, two NCAA records. And after that great career, I'm thinking I'm going to have a shot at the NFL, yeah. right? But unfortunately, you know, the NFL teams all said I was too short. 
you know, they, they didn't think I was big enough to be an NFL player. So I got the most incredible blessing that I could have ever imagined. I had a friend who was, uh, who was working for John Hancock, which is a financial services company in DC at the time. And he was like, Hey, you'd be great in this career. So I actually, right out of college, right out of JMU, I went and took a job as a financial advisor with John Hancock in Washington, DC. Now, as, as fate would have it, Six months later into that career, I get a call from the New York Giants saying that they wanted to sign me. Now, I thought it was one of my homeboys playing a trick on me. Because right? <laughs> basically out of the blue, there's a longer version of, the, of this story, but I'll, I'll spare you the details. But so, you know, I signed with the Giants and I get an opportunity to go make this team. And lo and behold, um, you know, I started my rookie year in 2002 as a starting kick and punt returner for the New York Giants, which was a dream come true. So I went from being a a walk on unrecruited out of college to sitting out of the NFL my first year out of college to starting as a punt and kick returner for the Giants. Man, did y'all hear that story, revolutionaries? Listen, because it started with a conversation that he had with his dad, right? That's where it started and the importance of fatherhood and his father saying, I don't want you to live the life that right, I've had to live. Right. And so as a as a wonderful, amazing, good, like mentor father said, you're going to go and never let anybody tell you what you cannot do. And it sounds like you took that mantra and like rocketed, propelled yourself right to start up because Brother, like, I'm a- I'm going to tell you something. I hate to interrupt, but my dad, unfortunately, and this is for better or for worse, like, I don't feel like there's anything I can't do. And so, you know, I said, you know, one day I said, I want to learn Spanish. And so I just started taking Spanish lessons because I, you know, I can do it. I I said one day I want to learn how to play guitar. And I just picked up a guitar and started playing guitar. So, you know, it is not without its challenges. But, you know, my dad um, really gave me a gift that I still use to this day. And that's a powerful thing to be able to look back and, you know, how our parents pour into us. You know, it's very similar to, I think, about the roles of my family. And so I, I'm grateful to hear the story of the disciplinary mother and the empowering father, because they both, they both are very empowering in their nature. And I, you know, I have to tell the story about when I first met Delvin. Um, both of us are BE Modern Men. You know, want to thank our good brother Alfred Edmonds Jr. for the work that they're doing at Black Enterprise and recognizing Black men all across the country and the work that we are doing to uplift our communities and to uplift ourselves to be beacons of light. Alfred is doing amazing thing and amazing things, and we thank him for his leadership. Met this brother last year uh, at in in Miami, having a wonderful, wonderful time. Uh, at the Be Modern Man uh, opportunity that they do every year. And, you know, we just started chopping it up. Like, who is this dude, right? Then we realized both of us were JMU grads. And then, you know, uh, there was a picture that you had posted on Instagram. And my boy, Phil Eccles, who is my best friend. Yeah. Small world, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like, yo, my boy Delvin is there, right? And I was like, what? I was like, we just finished talking. So it is a very small world. And, you know, good brothers travel together. Phil is one of the best men that I've ever met in my life. He's my best friend. He and Elijah Beatty, you know, we're just, we're family. We're brothers. And you and I began to chop it up. And we hung out most of the weekend, man. Just like, just, just, just vibing. Just saying, you know. Man, that was like- I- that was a great weekend, man. It was an Holy amazing. God. I'm sad that we could like I, that was going to be like like 
my every my every year event to go to because it was it's just amazing there's so much love there's so much like prosperity in the building people like i want to talk i want to build there's no animosity there's no like i'm better than you but it's black excellence man it's black excellence it is it is literally black excellence and you know thinking about i guess the point that i want to make delvin is when i met you that that feeling i was like this brother this brother can do anything like when he walks into a room like there's this like magnetic pull that people are like wow who is that brother you know what i'm saying because you just walk you walk into this room with this level of confidence and humility so there's this balance and you, the affable nature that you bring brings people to you and so it was really just like cool and i was like yeah i gotta have this brother on my show i know you know, but hearing that, that your father infused that into your life, right? And, and taking you from unrecruited walk-on at JAMU to unrecruited NFL to starting, right? After breaking all these records at JAMU um, and starting. Well, you know, you were there with Tiki Barber. Wasn't that Eli's first couple of years? Yeah, so we, so my rookie year, and by the way, I appreciate that compliment, man. And, that, and the feeling is mutual. Like when I met you, I was like, who is this cat? You had on a seersucker suit. I was like, dang, <laughs> this brother right here is crushing. New Orleans, New Orleans, <laughs> New Orleans. Man, you know what I'm saying? Exactly. Yeah, you're killing me. You were the second best dressed guy in the room that night, um, <laughs> for, for the record. So That's right. So, I'll take that. I'll take that. <laughs> so my my rookie year, actually, our quarterback was Kerry Collins, but you are right. Um uh, Tiki was there at the time. And what's funny is, you know, people always confused me for Tiki Barber. Yeah. Y'all, so, y'all, y'all could be twins. Y'all, y'all, y'all could be twins. <laughs> definitely. I, and he already has a twin, right? So yeah, I exactly. Triplet, I guess. Yeah, I guess but, so. but man, when I tell you, I signed so many autographs as Tiki Barber as a New York <laughs> Giant. and brother, when, if I would go out in Manhattan, you know, people would see me in restaurants and they would send drinks over for free. So it was a great life as Tiki Barber in my four <laughs> years there. So <laughs> I love it. I love it. Google Delvin Joyce, right? And Tiki Barber. You, you can see that, right? You, can, <laughs> you definitely, because I was like at, at BM, BMXL, I was like, is that Tiki Barber? <laughs> no, no, that's Delvin Joyce, man. So, I mean, you're in New York. You are the starting kick returner and punt returner for a couple of years for the Giants. It's That's, a, that's an amazing life. What was that like? Because, I mean, you're the first NFL player, former NFL player that I've had a chance to interview. What is that like being in the league? Like being in the, being a professional athlete. It, it's surreal. Um, you can't, it's kind of like the matrix. Like no one can be told what the matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Right. <laughs> like Blue pill, red is, pill. that's right. It's a, it's a surreal experience. Um, especially because for me, you know, I never, I never truly expected to be there. Right. Like I, so I knew all along I was playing with house money and for me to be in the same locker room with people that I had looked up to, the Jason Seahorns, the Amani Toomers, the Michael Strahans, and now these guys, we're peers, which is crazy. Now, Strahan showed me his check, his game check one week to let me know that we were, in fact, not peers. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, or he had a couple of more zeros on his check. Yeah. But you would be surprised how much of a business it actually is. Um, and so it is stressful. So if you are an undrafted um, free agent and you join the team in that way, your margin for error is nil. 
you cannot make any mistakes. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a first round draft pick, like our first rounder that year was Jeremy Shockey. Jeremy, great player, by the way, but he could fumble the ball. He could drop a pass. He could do all those things because they were so invested in him. They were not going to get rid of him. For me, as an undrafted free agent who had just been sitting in a cubicle for the last year, <laughs> you know, I, I had to be mistake free always. So it was a it was a tremendous amount of pressure, but it was a blessing, especially to do it in a city like New York. Right, right. That is interesting to see that the income disparity that happens, but the <laughs> uh, but the the stringency of or the uh, the critical the critical nature of what you're doing is heightened. Right. You're getting paid less, but you're the microscope is much bigger. Big time. Yeah. yeah. It's uh it's 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 incredible. But what I think what I think that instills in you is the idea that this could end any time. Right. So if you are someone who feels like you are on the fringe and you're on that margin as a player, then you don't spend your money the way a first rounder would. So for me. Getting in a week, you know, in a one week paycheck, I would get more money than I had ever seen my entire life. You know where that money went? In a savings account. Right. <laughs> like I didn't right. I didn't spend anything. I didn't buy a car my rookie year. I was still driving my Altima from college. <laughs> you know, the NFL has an internship program. I did an internship every summer in the off season in Manhattan just to make sure that I'm building my resume so that when, if this thing mm. ends, I don't walk out of the NFL and the only thing on my resume is football player. Wow. That in itself right there is a pearl, right? So if any of my rep revolutionaries, if you're playing college ball, right, you're thinking about, you get drafted. And I'm sure that there are, no, I, I'm, how about, I'll take this sure back. I'm going to hope there are a number of people out there like you who are giving advice to our young brothers who are moving into spaces like that, who may be undrafted, may not have the, the glamour, who are saying, like, how do I prepare for what's next, right? What's my next revolution if we're going to stay on brand here, Delvin? And, and knowing that and, and thinking about the future, because for you, and tell me if I'm wrong, because the statistics, the average lifespan for a running back in the NFL is three years. Three years, that's three, it. three years. And, you know, not everybody is your boy who's um, planning and playing in D.C. now who's like 85 and still running and still the running back. <laughs> What's yeah, his AP, name? Right? AP. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That dude is 85 in football years and still running over people. <laughs> He's a freak, man. He's he crazy. is. Right. And didn't he come back from like the craziest injury, like a torn ACL or something? I thought he was done and he's back and better than ever. So credit to that brother. Yeah, exactly. But thinking about what's next. And I think all of us have to think about what's next. And let me put this into context for one second, Delvin. Like we're mired in a pandemic. Unemployment's at 10%. And I remember uh, having this conversation with a good friend of mine. And as she and her business were, she's a, she owns her own beauty salon. And I asked her, I was like, look, you're about to you're about to lose business for a couple of months. Are you ready? Right? Do you have six months in you know six months in play that if you don't get another client for the next six months, you're gonna be okay. You got to feed your kids. You got to pay your rent. All these. And she was like, no. And so that just because you're playing ball and you're making a lot of money, all of us need to think about what's next because at some point our boss may come in the door and say, yo, it's been good, but. Uh, Holler, holler at me later. 
and you're out. And if you don't, like you said earlier in the show, you need to have those six, at least six months of your everything. You can pay your bills six months and be like, all right, I'm peace. I'm good because the stressors that come along with that, Delvin, when you got to try to make ends meet or what drive people to come see me, right? You know, to have these That's leadership right. conversations. Yeah, it, it, exactly. Um, and so- and just, to, just to piggyback on that for a second too. So with, with coronavirus and this pandemic, I think it's really put that, how fragile and vulnerable we all are. I think it's really put that in perspective. So 12 months ago, when I would meet with clients and I would say, hey, you need six months of your state of expenses and a savings account. And if you're an entrepreneur, we might run that out for an entire year. You know, people would look at me and say, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. But now with coronavirus and the global pandemic and how it's wrecked our economy, um, with that in the, in the backdrop, people are taking that a lot more serious. And what I have found, to your point, is that I will probably perform better in my job if I know I have six months of savings, right? If I have to go interview for a job, I'm probably going to do better in that job interview knowing that for the next six months, I'm okay if I don't get this job. Right. If, right. if I walk into a job interview and I have to have it because I only got two more weeks of bills saved, uh, I'm not going to do as well. And yeah, then the other yeah. thing is that when you don't have an emergency fund, emergencies happen. <laughs> emergency, yeah, exactly. Emergency happen. And they happen. I moved from New Orleans August 1st. And four hours into my trip, right, home, my car blew up. Four hours, right? My car, my car blew up. I was stranded in Montgomery, Alabama for five days while they looked at my car to ultimately tell me that, I needed a new $6,000 engine. And wow. yeah, exactly. But I thought to myself and the, and the blessings of the Lord um, was that it just that whole thing by itself was a, was a grand, right? The stay, uh, the towing of the car, everything was there, a grand. And I just thought like for many people, you know, for many people that grand would, would have hurt but I have been able to put and thankful to my thankful to my CEO at Camelback Ventures, who, you know, thinks about creating generational wealth and how we protect ourselves. Um, that grand didn't hurt. And but I, I just kept thinking, I was like many, many people, even me, probably 10 years ago, me two, three years ago would have been like, damn, this is a thousand dollars out of my pocket. What am I going to do? Right? right. And, you know, and so I just kept thinking. And so. Luckily, I'm home, living, living at home with my parents right now, taking care of them, driving my dad's 2007 Cadillac. But it's okay. Uh, that's fire, though. That that yeah, 07, yeah. that's fire. Yeah, that 07 Cadillac. But you know, I'm still been able to, I'm still been have been able to like save money. But I, I kept thinking when I started this job two years ago, I put, I just kept putting away money, knowing that things may happen. And like you said. When you don't have an emergency fund, emergencies happen. And if we can prepare for that, that's that's the crux of this. Look, brother, I, I don't want to belabor all, all this money talk. There's a couple of things that I want to just talk with you about. And maybe, I, I don't know, look, look we, we talk about me being 50. How old are you, Delvin? <laughs> I'll be 42 in three weeks. Okay, all right, all right. So you ain't that far, right? You ain't, you ain't, you ain't <laughs> no, that no. far from me, you know what I'm saying? You're like, you're like half a generation but behind. 
in, in football years, I'm 65. So yeah. I'm actually older than you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I grew up watching Georgetown, Georgetown basketball. And um, I'm gonna hope I'm gonna hope that you weren't too young where you didn't have the ability to see John Thompson coach the Georgetown Hoyers, right? I was up watching the 1982 final, you know, when Patrick Ewan got to Georgetown, like he was a revolutionary. He was a game changer. He was the watershed moment in college basketball. But John Thompson, right, the legendary coach, was was the was this man above coaches that talked about race relations and talked about Black Lives Matter before we even got there, right? Do you have any memories of Georgetown basketball and John Thompson, you know, and, and what that era, what he meant to us as, as young men growing up? My, my memory of John Thompson, my first memory of John Thompson actually cor correlates to Allen Iverson. Um, because I 100% remember sitting on the couch with my dad. My dad was, he always wanted us to be informed and educated. So we were watching, I want to say it was like 60 Minutes or Dateline NBC or one of those shows. And they did an expose on Allen Iverson when he was in high school. I didn't know who he was at the time. And it was about the, the, the bowling alley brawl, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and, and so Allen eventually ends up at Georgetown. And that was the first time I ever even really understood Georgetown Hoya basketball and John Top Thompson. And the, the thing that I remember about my first memory of him is how he gave someone a second chance. Like he, he, he gave Allen Iverson an opportunity when no one else would. Now, to put that in context, I, I, I have to tell you a little bit more about my dad, who he please worked do, with. Please do, please do. My dad was a, a counselor at for the Virginia Department of Juvenile Justice, which was a halfway house. And so my dad basically worked with kids who were, quote unquote, the worst of the worst, who had made the worst mistakes and gone to prison as juveniles. And now they are in his halfway house to help them matriculate back into society. And my dad always wanted me to be around these kids to see that they were just like me, right? They had hopes, dreams, and aspirations just like I did, that they were not less than because they had made a mistake. And that was a lesson that he taught me early as a kid. And then to, to fast forward to see John Thompson show and prove that with a guy like Allen Iverson, and then for Iverson to go on to have the type of career that he had, I just, you know, RIP John Thompson, we need more brothers like that. Man, drop the mic on that one. <laughs> drop the mic on that one, Delvin. You're right. We, we, we need more. We need more men like John Thompson. And that story you just told is amazing, right? The, Revolutionaries, if you've been really, really listening to this show, right, it has been undergirded by a story of father, and son, right? Literally, this show is for men and the people who love them. This show has been undergirded by a story of a father and son who told him, you can do anything. Who's, you know, and, and thinking about that, but also wanted to expose him to understand that I want the young men that I work with, right? I want for you to see them and I want them to see you, to see that they're similar. And that what rings so much to me as a developmental psychologist is that each of us can have a cam the same canvas, but oftentimes the paint the painting is different. 
because of some some little thing that de- deviates the road or deviates the way that our, we decide to paint the palette. So it's so interesting that your father, you know, provided these pearls for you to be so successful. John Thompson did that for many a young man who walked into those hallowed halls at Georgetown because we know Georgetown is one of those prestigious PWIs in the country, right? Right. And right. what you saw at Georgetown in the 1980s and the 1990s were brothers that looked like me and you that were coming from some of the some of the poorest places in the country that were being uplifted by, by this great man to play basketball and go on to greater heights. Those teams, you know, you lo- I remember like being in high school and everybody wanted that Georgetown Hoyas starter jacket. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to rock, you wanted to rock that deep blue and gray Georgetown. Every- right. Hoyas, Hoyas, Hoyas. We loved Hoyas. We loved John Thompson. So rest in peace, dear brother. Thank you for all that you've done from a leadership perspective. Thank you for being a stalwart as a black man in this country. And we, you will be missed, especially Amen. during these. Yeah, you especially during these times, Delvin, that we're wrestling with as black men and the perils that it doesn't matter if you're the president of Prosperity Wealth Group or you're the CEO. Of What's the revolution? You got this podcast. It doesn't matter because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, our skin color, our skin color is frightening to the world. You know, it is frightening to right. the world. And so I ask you this as we begin to close out, Delvin, like you have children. You know, you are fortunate to be married and have children and to be successful. What kind of conversations are you having with your children during this period of unrest that we've never, that we didn't experience growing up? Yeah, this is a, um, this is, it's a tough, tough time, um, especially raising young kids. And, and obviously they get exposed to things that, you know, we, we want to keep them as innocent as possible for as long as possible. But my kids are 13, 11, and 10. My 13-year-old is actually going on 25. So <laughs> she, she, she's, she's the one that's the trailblazer. She's got an Instagram account. And what's interesting is that, you know, someone sent something to me the other day that was posted on Black Lives Matter Instagram page. And I look at it, and you know how Instagram you know, puts people on blast, right? So like if, if somebody in your, that you follow or that follows you likes something, it tells you. And I saw this post and my daughter had liked it. And, you know, while we think that our kids are not watching, that they're not paying attention, um, that taught me right then and there that my daughter is formulating opinions about what's going on right now. And we have to be, um, involved and help to to shape that perspective Um, because we don't want them to become jaded but by the same time we want them to understand and have an awareness of what's going on so the conversations that we're having are more around trying to give them historical perspective right Um, because for you know obviously they're they're school-aged and in their schools they learn a certain thing um, and we want them to understand the historical context of some of the things that are happening right now. We want them to see that there's been progress, but that there's um, a lot more to be done and that there's no shame in, in calling out, um, you know, the progress that needs to happen. Unfortunately, we've created a binary in this country where if you are for progress or you want racial equality, or you believe that black lives matter, 
it also means that you're unpatriotic. And I don't believe that. And so yeah. we're just trying to help them conceptualize that you can be both. And you should be both as a patriot. One, again, one of those drop the mic moments because, wow, wow, <laughs> wow. Delvin, it, it is interesting that you say it in, in, in such a, a matter of fact terms that you can still be patriotic and still believe that black lives matter, right? There's no dichotomy. And I, I wrote this piece the other day. It was like that, you know, almost from this like, like disassociated, disassociated person was like, just because you raised, just because you have your flags in front of your house, this flag, our flag in front of your house, or they fly so high on your truck, doesn't mean that it's just your flag. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It does not mean that it's just your flag. All right. I too sing America. You know, if we think about Langston Hughes's poem and being patriotic, right? It, it is almost lost. Like this is what it means to be patriotic. Like. Um, I often see when we think about our veterans, people go to white men. My father fought in the Korean conflict, right? He is wow. a retired, he is a retired lieutenant colonel, right? If, if you want to think about patriotic, right? And so, uh, so many of our, so many of our brothers came home from wars and were lynched, gave their lives for this country but you want to call us unpatriotic. You want to take the flag. Oh man. All right. You see, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> on my tangent right now, but, I, but I love that infusion of that. This, that these ideologies don't have to be separate, right? That we're fighting for the life of our country and that we believe like that. We, I wake up every day and I'm still American because when the world cup comes on, I'm not rooting for Greece. I'm not rooting for Croatia. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. I look, I'm rooting for Megan Rapino. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you no know? Doubt. And she's rooting yeah. for us. Yeah, exa exactly. That's that's who I'm rooting for. And so, and so I love that. I love those conversations, brother. Look, last question that we'll ask you, and I appreciate everything that you've done for this show, everything that you do for the world. And your story, your story is amazing, man. I I am fortunate just to get to do this show, just to get to talk to amazing, like super dope, like brothers like yourself. And so people always ask, like, you bring these dudes on the show, like, I want to hear what they're doing to take care of themselves, right? We're mired in a pandemic, social unrest. What are you doing to take care of your mind and your body, Delvin? Man, that is a, uh, that is a really good question. And that's, that's, that's been a challenge because this pandemic has, you know, has, has caused a lot of extra stress that we typically would not have had to deal with, right? We got our kids home. We got to teach them. You know, we have to, uh, you know, do all these extra things to get by. But um, I, I am a hardcore uh, fitness and nutrition guy. And so, you know, I, I, I was raised in the South. We didn't learn how to eat healthy. Mm -hmm. And so that has been my mission to, to make sure that I'm taking care of my body so that, you know, if you, my, my motto is if you have, make sure if you ever have to fight for your life, you can. And so... You know, I, I work out every morning. Yeah, I got to work out in my driveway now because my gym was closed for a while and I'm just not going in there. But I work out every morning. I make sure that I'm putting the right things in my body um, with the exception of the occasional bourbon. 
but you know, just, <laughs> he's just, been drinking bourbon this entire conversation. Just, <laughs> just so you know, it's like, and, and, and his background, his background is quite envious people, right? You know, most people got the book. Most people got the bookcase. This brother's got, this brother's in his whiskey room with a, a number of, number of bourbons <laughs> that he's doing his thing. <laughs> well, like, listen, this li- was, this was a gift that my wife wanted to give me. She said, you know, you got all this great bourbon and whiskey Let's build a room in our house so you can display it. And this is it. So quarantine hobbies. Yeah, no, I, I, it is a very, very beautiful. It is a very, very beautiful space, brother. And look, your wife is amazing. <laughs> He's amazing, man. Your also wife. a JMU grad, by the way. Also a JMU Hey, grad. gotta love these Dukes, man. Go Dukes. So taking care of yourself, you know, thinking about what you're putting in your body and, you know, just, just, you know, doing your thing. And you look at this brother, he looks like he played ball. Right. He still looks like he still looks still looks svelte, you know, taking care of yourself. One thing that I have done and I don't know, you might want to chime in for one second. I I try to go mostly vegan, vegan or vegetarian these days. And I feel so much better. Uh, I can't cook. So I actually found a vegan chef here in Virginia Beach. But veganism is really seeming to be well, do well with my body. And I turned 50 in nine months. I'm really, really thinking about what the, what does that mean? And you, you know, seeing your story and know what, what you're doing, it is an inspiration to me as well. Wow, vegan, that's that's huge, man. And I, I'm a big believer in you should try it, see how you feel. And if you don't feel great, then do something else. So mm-hmm. I, I, I'm glad it, it's working for you. I actually tried to do a little pescatarian type of thing and I just didn't feel like I had the same level of energy. Gotcha. So I, I, you know, I still eat the red meat and, and chicken and all that stuff, but yeah, I love a good steak, brother. Don't, don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Delvin, look, man, I appreciate the time. I appreciate the knowledge. One thing he just dropped revolution is what you hear. He's like, you know, if you be, pre- what'd you say? Be prepared. If, if you get in a fight, be prepared to fight. Well, it, it's, if you, if you ever have to fight for your life, make sure you can. And yes, that's I why you gotta that. keep yourself. Take care of yourself. Yeah, if you ever have to fight for your life, make sure that you can. I love that. There's so many gems that I can't wait to even do the show notes in this. But Delvin, thank you for your time, and I appreciate it. It means a lot. I'm glad we were able to finally get this show done and to memorialize all of the amazing things that our revolutionaries will be able to take back and use and implement in their life. And for all of you all who are listening and who continue to listen, I want to thank you for your support. It means so much to me. The, the notes, you know, people are like, hey, yo, I, I heard the show and I'm just internalizing the things that you all are talking about. Thank you for doing the show. So I appreciate you all. And make sure you check in, check back, check with me to make sure you're getting what you need in this world. And if you need some help, like I said earlier, to answer what we think is the most thought-provoking question in your life, don't hesitate to reach out. We are here for you. For you. For you. I wish you a good week. I want to thank my man Delvin for coming by and dropping knowledge to us. We'll talk to you soon, revolutionaries. Take care. Take care. Peace. Peace. What's good, revolutionaries? What's good, revolutionaries?